Hey friends, you're listening to the Remote Work Bestie Podcast. I'm your host, Daniela Flores. You might have seen me on CNBC, Time, BuzzFeed, or my blog, I Like to Dabble, talking about money, side hustles, and remote careers, because I'm pretty obsessed with demystifying and busting open all of the above. So what even is this podcast? Remote Work Bestie is here to challenge the traditional 9 to 5, 40-hour work week and help you navigate a more flexible way of working and living. Join me every week as I chat with experts and other Remote Work Besties to help you navigate the world of work and money in a non-boring, exposing, weird, and fun way. Today, I'm chatting with Vanessa Wachmeister of Wander Onwards, all about moving abroad, remote work contracts, and expat finances. Vanessa currently lives and works out of Germany remotely and helps people pursue financial and location independence through her platform. So start at the beginning for the besties and give us a nutshell version. How did you first start like moving abroad and getting a job abroad? Well, I was actually studying to be a lawyer. So I did the LSAT and took the classes and I was actually in Boston for the Boston bombings, unfortunately. And so I was working for my university at the marathon. And that was like a real come to Jesus moment that I had only done everything that I was told to do by my parents and society. And I really didn't know who I was or like had a personality. So I bailed on law school and decided to teach English in China um, because it was the easiest way to get abroad ASAP. I'd never been to China. I never spoke, or I didn't speak Chinese at the time. I didn't even know anyone in China. I just wanted something radically different than what I was doing. And then 10 years later, I'm still abroad. That's awesome. I love your story because it's just like, you just jumped into it. Like hundred percent. Like I'm just going to do this, see what happens. <laughs> Honestly, thank God I did it when I was 21 and like too dumb to like have doubt in myself. I was like, oh, of course I'll figure it out. I'll be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Be okay. Now at 32, I'm not sure if I would have been like so radical with my decision and sell everything and, and take such a blind leap of faith. But when I was young, I was just deluded into thinking that I could do anything that I set my mind to. And you know what? That mentality has really carried me into my adult life, too. That's awesome. When I was 21, I was just making a a string of bad decisions (laughs) that I mean, like if I could have just maybe like, oh, hey, I'm going to go and like explore life a little more rather than like jump right into a corporate job and do all this stuff that I didn't really know, like if I wanted it, you know. So I commend you for that. When you first moved abroad, was that like a remote job or did you have to go, did you like go like, you know, into a program or something where you had to be on site? Yep. I was in a program where I had to be on site. So I had to go to my elementary school that I was teaching at every day. I would teach about two hours a day, um, which is not a lot for what they gave me. I got my apartment paid for. I got about a thousand US dollars sent to my bank account every month. And that was more than enough to live and enjoy my life in China. But I'm a greedy girl. Like I wanted (laughs) more. So I learned how to code when I was in China. And I started building websites for people and charging people for those websites. And in the middle of my China experience, I actually got salmonella and was like, out of the workforce for three months, completely bedridden, could not be out of my apartment or away from a loo for like longer than an hour. And that's what really pushed me to start this remote work more seriously because I couldn't leave my house and I needed a way to support myself. And like 10 years later, I'm still doing that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's how I first got like introduced to working for myself online too, is freelance web development because I well, I got fired from my first job. <laughs> I needed a way to make money on like the side of serving. So um, how did you first fully land like your remote, the first fully remote job after that or hybrid job? 
This is actually my first remote contract, 100%. All of my other remote jobs are, were either a uh, contract or like a flexible work environment where I would go in two or three days and then work from home the others. This job I got because they were looking for someone with entrepreneurial spirit and experience plus um, API experience. And so it's kind of hard to find someone who is into engineering for APIs and can still like create something out of nothing. Yeah. So I ended up being the right candidate for the job. And I told them I want hundred percent remote or I'm not going to do it. And they gave it to me. That's awesome. And I mean, like, it's so cool that so many companies actually are looking for that entrepreneurial experience and like that, I guess, like mashup because mm. you're flexible and like very quick with your thinking, I think too. And you can make something out of nothing, which is not a skill you can learn in school, kids. Right. That is true. I mean, there's not really any entrepreneurship classes. At least there wasn't at my college, I don't think. But I wasn't like a business degree. I was a, a computer science degree. So it was a lot of math and coding. <laughs> uh-huh, but <nerd. laughs> yeah, I know I was a nerd. I mean, that was after like five different majors I went through, of course. <laughs> the original one was like an entertainment management. Nope. Yeah. Why? Oh my god. I don't goodness. know. I have no it's, it's cuz I was watching Entourage at the time. I think that's why. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I think Next Top Model and and some of these more entertainment focused shows have really influenced our generation and I knew a lot of people that were thinking about going into entertainment or fashion and I would look at them like you buy your clothes at Target and you want to go into high fashion like why? I don't think there's a lot of mentorship for young people about what what careers are available, how people can break into STEM outside of like being really good at calculus. And I'm hoping that people can look at my platform and see a woman who did English as her degree, uh, trained her, ent- her entire life to be a lawyer, and is now working in tech, building API tech and developer experiences. Right. I mean, it's funny how our, like the journeys that we go through to get to where we are now. I mean, like if I, I would never want to be an entertainment manager, like hell no. Mm-mm. I just didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. So I would just, I was trying like all these different things. So I was like, well, I'm really good at this stuff, like with development. Cause I've been doing it since I was a kid, like playing with websites and stuff. So that's where I went. But yeah, like I, even then I didn't really have a lot of information about what I sh- could do after that, but I had the privilege of that connection with my dad about it. But like now, I mean, now I think there's a whole lot more resources out there for people for like what you can do, but also also there's like a ton more positions too that are available to people versus back then where it was basically like, like I, when I first started in tech back then, my position then was called a programmer analyst or a computer programmer, which is like a name from the nineties. Yeah, no kidding. And then it changed slowly. Like as I went through different (laughs) employers to like software engineer, lead reliability engineer, it's like they make up a new position name every year. A lot of them do the same thing. hundred percent. We have the same problem in like product management because we have product management, program management, project management, technical product manager. It's just a bunch of fancy names for slightly different jobs. And I think being an entrepreneur really allows me to take advantage of that question of what am I good at? What can I, what are people willing to pay me money for? And then to add a little bit of like sprinkle, sprinkle on that, what country could I move to with these skills? And that's the life I've always wanted. Just a lot of options. I get to try lots of things and I don't have to make a decision yet about what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Absolutely. So can you talk about a little bit like what a product manager is for anybody listening? 
Because I also have like a very vague idea from the product managers I've worked with, but I don't know like exactly everything they do. Well, I think it varies company to company and like how much staffing you actually have. So to me, a product manager is focused on strategy. So how does this product fit within the suite of products that your company offers or within um, multiple phases of a single product? And in addition to strategy, you have to kind of know a little bit of everything. So when it comes to the API side, I can make shop calls, I can make booking calls, I can test the technology and get like a basic understanding of what to expect for our users. Mm -hmm. I also have like a UX UI uh, certificate from uh, Coursera. So I can draw up a sketch of what I think it would look like and then pass it off to people much more talented than me to really create a, a viable product design. And then you're your product's biggest advocate. So I'm constantly meeting with teams and leadership to talk about what my product does and why it's something worthwhile to invest in. And then you got to kind of beat it out with other people in the business to get resourcing and priorities. So you got to be a salesperson as well. Right. Oh, my God like fighting, well, not fighting, but like you said, like, you know, kind of going head to head about what priorities are and with budget and all that stuff. I would also like suspect that you have to have really good communication skills with that job. Correct. And the folks that struggle in this role are the ones that can't teach themselves new tricks. So for example, we lost our analytics department momentarily because they got reorged to another org. And so I had to like brush up on SQL go into Tableau and fix some of my dashboards. And if you don't have the confidence in yourself to just see a problem and like attack it head on, I would not recommend you become a product manager because there's just too much ambiguity. You might want to go towards a program manager or a project manager who is more or less someone who is very organized, kind of like an event manager and can keep everyone on track without actually participating in the day-to-day nitty-gritty tasks. You're kind of working with all these different things. And when like a certain part of like analytics goes away, or maybe like engineers, just there's not that many and that certain team at the time for resources. So you have to kind of like pick up the slack and like jack of all trades or a Jane of all trades, you know, I know project managers. Yeah. Most of the time they are just like kind of keeping the project on track. Some of them I've worked with some that do like analytics and stuff, but like you said, it depends on the company. You have to be a really motivated sub on the bench. If you're, (laughs) you're not going to be the best at anything, but you can't, you need to be able to play every position to like a basic level and requirement because shit gets crazy in technology and uh, you can't always predict where you're going to be, what your product is going to be and what your funding is going to be. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like one quarter you have funding, you have priority. The next quarter it gets pushed down or pushed up or whatever. Yeah, tech is like a a mixed bag sometimes. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. So I want to talk about the remote work contracts because as people are like getting remote jobs, especially like before the pandemic when they went remote or they got a remote job and they didn't have it on their contract and now they're getting kind of, well, being asked to come back in the office or hybrid or like they moved away or they live far from the office too. And and that some of these companies... They're asking employees to come back to the office. And if they don't, they'll be fired, which is like, okay, that's a little uh, extreme. But I was able to negotiate remote work in my contract, but it was at the same company for two positions. The one was when I moved because during the pandemic, I was already remote and I had to tell them I was moving for tax purposes, of course. So I was like, Mm -hmm. can we work this into my contract? Like, I live in this state now because it was a new contract. So I was like, okay. 
And then I got a new position. I had that added into that, which was fine because I had already worked there. So Mm -hmm. what was it like for you in your position? So I had a similar experience where I was already working for that company and I was just hopping to a different organization within the same company. And so I framed it. I had two motivations. One, I wanted a pay raise and not just like a couple thousand dollars. I asked for 30,000 extra dollars because they had hired me super cheap. And I knew from my mentor who had like visibility over the pay brackets that I was in the lowest third of the pay bracket for my position. And so I was like, not today, Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Not today, Satan. (laughs) Give me 30,000 extra dollars. Secondly, I want to be 100% remote because my husband's job drags us back and forth across Europe regularly. So uh, they had already had to redo my contract twice to accommodate me. And so getting a remote contract was just going to eliminate a lot of extra paperwork. And that's my original pitch. And they were like, great, we think we can give you one of two. We'll talk about two of two, uh, but don't get your hopes up. And then I ended up getting a second offer from a financial company for the same money, uh, basically the same type of contract working with APIs again. And then I just held a gun at their head. I was like, give me the (laughs) contract and the 30K. Otherwise, I'm going to go over here. And not only are you losing an API expert that knows the company APIs, like the back of my hand, because that was my job. I would go out to other companies and help them integrate. Uh, You're also losing an entrepreneur and this product doesn't exist. And I don't know anyone in this company that has made a product go from zero to 60 and actually turn a profit. So they gave it to me. You did the exact thing that every time that I've negotiated or actually tried to negotiate because I didn't negotiate much in the beginning of my career because I was naive and scared. But every time after that, it was like you had to prove your business value. That's was like what really gave you leverage. And you did it like beautifully. So if anyone's listening... That's how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think when you're thinking about what business value do I bring, you should focus on what makes you special from any other engineer, any other communication major, blah, blah, that might be interviewing for this position as well. So I really hammered on that API experience. Like it is an API product. I do APIs all day, all night. And then secondly, Regardless if someone is better than me at API uh, product management or execution, whatever, and there's a lot of people that are a lot better at that than me, you cannot replicate the entrepreneurial skills as easily. And I really think that's what got me over the line, my business wander onwards. So don't sleep on a little like side hustle hobby, y'all, because it could really make a huge difference in your nine to five job. Yeah, because when you're an entrepreneur, they know that you know how to teach yourself stuff and quickly on the spot. And you could switch around and yeah, your work quality doesn't really, it doesn't suffer from that too, because most entrepreneurs are kind of obsessed with detail and it bothers the hell out of us when it's not like up to par as it should be. For anyone else listening, I do want to talk about like what API is. So like some people that might be listening aren't like tech people. So can you explain what API means and the stuff that you do with API? Yeah. So API stands for application programming interface. And that's just a fancy way of saying one company has an API that is secure and can securely send information to another company that has Mm -hmm. made an API call, kind of like a phone. If you can't see my video right now, I'm holding up two (laughs) to my face uh, (laughs) to uh, mimic what's going on. 
And so company A says, hey, company B, I need pricing for a hotel in London for three days for a romantic getaway for Danielle. And then the other company's like, all right, we got 150 responses and choices for you to choose from. Through this call, your customer can securely search, check out, pay. And this is how the B2B business world goes round. My company provides the hotel and uh, accommodation for most American outlets that sell hotels. So think of the credit card companies that are trying to get you to book. Think of the airline companies that are trying to get you to book after you get your flight. We have our fingers in all of those different holes. Yes. Thank you for that explanation. So with your current job, um, are they like a work from anywhere kind of remote agreement or is it maybe remote only in the areas that they have a presence, like their different offices? So my contract is a Germany specific remote role, but in Europe, we don't have any barriers where you would need to check your passport when you travel. So it's unclear how they would figure out if I was in Portugal or if I was in Spain full time. The way they uh, get you is through the health insurance because you need to have a um, health insurance card that is associated with where your tax residency is. And so that's the only thing stopping me from going to Spain and saying I'm anywhere else uh, that I should be. Um, ah. So it, it's really a gray area for a lot of people. The biggest concern that American companies have, and this is what they tell their employees, is tax. But in my experience and what my clients have done, they just sacrifice whatever tax that they owe to the, the government because, you know, your company withholds and then you have to report at the end of the year. And then they file using the Foreign Earned Income Exclusion Act, which basically tells America, haven't been living in America for an extended period of time, give me my federal and state taxes back. And then they get that money back. Oh, that's cool. So like that's if they were to work like if they had they were working for an American company and they went to Europe and they're still working there. So they get Correct. their taxes back. Correct. Oh, that's cool. There's a certain amount of threshold. Uh, Social Security and self-employment tax is a little bit harder to like claw back, but you get a fat refund so long as you've been outside of the America for more than 330 days off the top of my head. Oh, that's cool. There's several companies now that are like remote first companies where they let you work, you know, anywhere in the world, you know, aside from a couple of countries like, you know, Syria, I guess yeah, <laughs> in other countries. Yeah. Well, my first fully remote job was for a, it was a government contracting company. It was a service disabled owned veteran business. I can't like remember the whole like acronym and they were fully remote and they said like, all I had to do was make, let them know when I was leaving the country. Mm -hmm. But besides that, like all my jobs where I was remote, we always log in via VPN and you can always pick the mm -hmm. location on your VPN of where you log in from. And because like all the time there'll be like one location where it's like kind of screwy and you have to like try a, bush, a couple of others. So like it didn't really matter where you were because your VPN location would say like Toronto or like Dublin or there's like all these other areas. We only had like one American one on the VPN list. So it's like, that's funny. Like I could be anywhere. You guys wouldn't know <laughs> unless they were like tracking location of the laptop, which I don't know if they can do that, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's up in the air how much Big Brother is watching us. But when yeah. I was living in China using my work laptop and my VPN, I would just drop myself in America and had 
full access to Instagram, even though it was banned, Facebook, even though it was banned, like you can really hide with a good VPN out there uh, in the world. And most of these companies are just trying to cover their own asses when they say, no, you can't leave the country, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. There's like legal implications. The tax one is less of an issue if you file correctly, but there are remote first companies. You can get a hybrid uh, remote contract here in Europe, uh, even if you are American. So there's a lot of options for people now. Yeah. The last company I was working for, the issue was when I had to like re-add it into my contract when I was moving to Washington, it was like, they kept my remote status, but first they had to take some time to check that they had the business registration presence in that state. And they did, even though there's, there's not an office for that company in Seattle, they just, it was a global company, which, you know, it's easier to find a fully remote job with global companies because they have the presence across the United States and in other countries. So talking about all of this remote work globally, I know that now there's kind of a rise of global gentrification from digital nomads, not only from corporate remote workers, but from digital entrepreneurs that are just hopping from country to country. And I kind of wanted to know how can a remote worker ethically travel and relocate to another country? Like if they're short-term travelers or like long-term travelers where they're spending like six months to a year in one country and then the next country and next country. It's a tough question because the question requires me to like speak for the world and right like, obviously uh, you just, every every country is experiencing this crisis in a different way and also i think there's been an unfair like focus on remote workers as being the number one uh villain in this story whereas really the problem is wealthy folks coming in buying up a bunch of property to either a short-term lease or just like hold selfishly um, and then not contributing to the local economy through taxes, through business generation, or by paying into the social security and healthcare system. Lisbon is a great example of a crisis that at first glance looks like it's a result of the foreign remote workers. But for the last four or five years, they've had a housing visa where you could just buy a house and get residency and you don't need to live there. You can get a passport this way too. So a lot of Russian and Chinese money came in to get a European passport and to leave their countries. But the sexy headline is digital nomads ruin Lisbon. Whereas we're not as common as people think we are uh, moving around and we eventually have to leave. So little rant over uh, the way that you can improve your participation in the economy around you is one by officially applying for these digital nomad visas. This way you start to participate in the economy. Many of these have a reduced tax uh, liability. So you're still contributing to the local economy, just not as uh, severely since you are a temporary resident. You can also participate in the healthcare systems by paying the surge charge that is required to actively participate in the healthcare. But most of these people are young folks that are coming on these remote contracts. So they don't even use the, the healthcare. They just pay into it, which I think is great. And learn the language, guys. Like there is no shame in stumbling through Spanish or Portuguese or German. But the point is you're there for a cultural exchange. And it's a far better experience when you can actually connect with people who live in the country versus these like expat bubbles that strictly work in English and like have no interest in the local uh, societies. 
That's such a great point about digital nomads in the media, about how they're the villains about traveling and working remotely. Right now with media, a lot of rallying against remote work, a lot of backlash because it's corporate propaganda, of course. <laughs> Agreed. You always need to like re-examine what other problems could be present and is that a sexy problem to report on or not. Another issue with the Portuguese situation is Portugal has not had any real wage growth in decades. We have the same problem in the UK. And so people are unable to keep up with the rising cost of living. Uh, there are more, there's a shortage in non-technical jobs and non-trained jobs. Uh, so people are fighting it out for much lower pay and much fewer jobs. But it's harder to criticize like a whole country and like the, the global inflation. It's easier to say these remote workers that are only here for six months at a time, they're the villains, they're the problem. Right. It's the workers are not the ones who are driving global inflation and the Correct. rising cost of living. I mean, we, we need to stop looking at each other and look up. A hundred percent. Look up, guys. Look up. Um, yes. There's about 9 million Americans abroad right now scattered across the globe. And so we 9 million are one. Many of us are dual citizens. So uh, they've been out here for years. Many of them are accidental Americans. So they don't even realize that they're supposed to be paying and filing tax back home. <laughs> we are not the cancer that people complain about uh, or should fixate on. We're part of a larger problem that many countries are a part of, and there are systematic things that we need to reevaluate versus pointing fingers at one another. Right. Yeah. But as the media points fingers at a certain group being the workers, which they do often, then it takes the spotlight off of what could be happening above. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about work benefits in Germany specifically, because that's where you work and you probably have the most experience with those work benefits. I know the work benefits in Germany are must, much better than the U.S., like most countries are, of course. So how does like your expenses and taxes pan out in relation to your German um, expenses and taxes? Totally. So let's use a really easy example of 100K uh, in gross uh, earnings from your job. So that's before tax, folks. So I've actually done videos about this because nobody seems to believe that there's any way that uh, other than America, you can make money. If you compare the tax that you pay here in Berlin versus what you would pay in California, both for $100,000 or euros, you get the same take home money. Ooh. But you don't have health insurance in California. You don't have social yeah. security. Here in Germany, I have 35 days off of holiday. I could take two weeks every two years to go learn something new, anything from German to like kite flying. Yeah. I have a government pension here that is hedged against inflation. So the amount increases as I get older and as inflation continues, so long as I have a certain amount of points, those points guarantee me a certain lifestyle. Once I retire, we have a lot of support for families. So the government here gives us money to have children because they're so desperate for people to reproduce. Yeah. Uh, it's about 280 euros per child per month until that child is like 18 or something like that. So a lot more of like day-to-day -day impact on your life than I've ever got in America. Right. It seems like they actually care. I mean, they take care of their people and their workers because it's just... It's for the good of the collective. 
for the country. A hundred percent. And when you pay into the system, the system recognizes that and, and takes care of you. So if I were to lose my job because I've already paid into the system for two years, I would get 70% of my salary until the end of 12 months. So I can transition to a new job and not lose my house and my entire life. Oh my gosh. So that's like the government gives you that not like severance coming from the employer. It's coming from the government. It's a unemployment insurance. Yeah. And between those two, the government and the unemployment insurance, you're able to stay afloat and even take um, the opportunity to retrain and try something new without having to lose your dog, your house, your car, and everything you have ever built for yourself. Right. Oh my God, that's awesome. And I'm sure it's a whole lot easier process than in the US applying for unemployment, where I just hear horror story after horror story about people trying to get unemployment. The unemployment is so low. Um, my sister was, was temporarily laid off and I think she was getting like less than two grand a month in New yeah. York City. Like they didn't even cover her rent. Uh, yeah. So thank God she was living with people, but it's just a lot more scary in America that, and you could just lose everything. If you get sick, if you lose your job, if your, your healthcare decides to no longer support your cancer treatment and that sort of extreme life experience is so far from my idea of what is life here that it almost seems unfair to even continue talking about it to Americans because it's, I, I don't ever think about mass shootings, getting laid off, not being able to afford my healthcare. It's not my reality. Right. Oh my, like yesterday in the news, it was like a couple of mass shootings I saw on my Apple news. I'm like, what the, it's every day now. And then it's like this American propaganda or whatever the word you want to use for it, um, where they tell you, or they show you through news and the media that they're showing you that other countries are not as good or that you earn less or that, you know, all these other things. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just not true. I did hear in Germany that there's a law built into the system that if an employer contacts you after 5 p.m. that you can like go after them. Can you like, is that true? It's partially true. So we have something called the Workers' Council here in Germany, which is like a standard uh, union group that represents the, the workers at a company that make under a certain amount. So we call it a union tariff. If you fall under that, then you're part of the union tariff and the union can vouch on your behalf, but I'm over that. And the union still represents me and my wishes. I get to vote for these people. They protected us against layoffs during the uh, pandemic. My company's workers council told the company when they were asked to lay off 200 people from Germany, no, we won't. We'll lay off 24 and whoever volunteers but those people are going to get one month's salary for every year they've worked for the company, plus an extra 6,000 euros per child that they have, plus the standard like layoff severance package, which was six months at the time. So you really have a lot of rights and protection here. And for that reason, I'm never going to leave. Right. Oh my God. This makes me think of the mortgage insurance that's here. After I bought my house, I got like a letter every week and it was like, sign up for mortgage insurance. It's like, I don't need that. I have like, you know, my home insurance. And this mortgage insurance tells you that if you have this insurance that you'll pay into every month, which by the way, people don't get this, you have this insurance you pay into every month. And then if you were to lose your job, you could have like your mortgage covered and stuff. 
that's awesome that Germany just has this thing built into the system that they take care of their people and their workers so they can continue to live their life if they were to get laid off. Um, and in America, we have fraudulent things like mortgage insur mortgage insurance, where it's just very predatory. And it's not really going to help you out much if you do pay into it and you lose your job. <laughs> or this whole life insurance that people yeah. are trying to sell me on. I was like, why? I have no children. I'm at, like peak of my career right now. Why would I get whole life insurance? And then they try to sell it as if it's a retirement plan. Oh, yeah. Like, how is this legal? You're taking advantage of people who don't understand their retirement plans, their options, et cetera. And then you lock them into a lifetime contract. I don't understand. Oh, yeah. Um, I think my grandparents did like they bought into that like a long time ago, like in the 70s, maybe. But they got out of it, I think. Did they get um, any money back? Oh, yeah. They had like they got money that like was supposed to like accrue, you know, like they tell you that your money will grow like this much money year on year over year. It wasn't that much, but they were able to get it back. So life insurance in Germany, do they have life insurance in Germany or like something like if you were to die, your spouse would be covered or any dependents? Oh, we love insurances here in Germany, <laughs> <laughs> but our insurances are much lower. So my travel insurance was like four dollars a month uh, for like worldwide coverage. Um, our third party liability insurance, I think for the both of us. So if we like crash our car into someone, if we break someone else's computer, we pay about $2 a month for that, uh, per month. You could insure your hands if you're a hand model or even a computer engineer. Yeah. Um, so in case you lose a finger or you get injured and can no longer type, uh, they will cover some of your salary until you die or until the like terms of the insurance ex expire. We love a good insurance here. And yeah. that's actually a criticism I have of Germany. Please do not troll me on my uh, online <laughs> profiles. But like the Germans hate risk. They will do anything to mitigate it. But as a result, they sacrifice uh, growth and innovation, because instead of investing in the financial markets, most people rely on their government pensions and on these old age insurances, which are essentially a uh, managed fund that only guarantees you or promises 90% of the money you contributed, plus a uh, growth ratio of like 0.1%. And to Germans, they're like, this is a great deal. Like, sign me up for this, especially if my company is the one paying into this insurance and I don't have to. But for me, knowing what I know about the stock market and how to invest in index funds, I do both. Yes, I have the like hedged bet of my insurance taking care of me, but that's not enough money for me to live on, uh, which is why I have my retirement accounts and my brokerage. So if somebody wanted to look at how they would get a job abroad and move abroad. What was what would be some tips that you would tell them for where to start? I think doing your master's or some sort of like one year program abroad is probably the easiest and fastest way to get abroad because one, they'll give you a long-term student visa, which comes with a work allowance of 20 hours plus a possible rollover onto a work visa for anywhere from one to two years. So already with a couple thousand dollars of investment, because uh, education is cheap out here, you unlock three years of studying and working in Europe, which I think is a great deal. And that's exactly what I did in the UK. If you want to transfer your nine to five 
abroad, it's going to be a little bit harder if you're fresh out of university and have no real life experience. But for those of us who have two to five years of experience, target larger international companies that are out here in Europe because their common language is probably going to be English. And that'll put you in a better position to work amongst the team and to be able to really thrive there. Those are some good tips. I know that for my ADHD years listening, I know that executive function is an issue with the process of getting visas. Is that complicated? It is a lot of paperwork and the complications depend on what country you're applying to. So countries like Spain and uh, Italy, the paperwork is relatively small uh, in comparison to something I've seen in like applying to China, applying to Germany. However, their bureaucratic systems are horrendous. It takes like four months just to file paperwork. And if you get something wrong, you have to wait another month to hear about what you got wrong and then potentially another month, month to receive your documents back to then apply and wait another four months for a decision. So these are some of the things you need to watch out for timelines. And then you can always pay someone to help you with your application. But if you're getting a work sponsorship, your company will have someone to support you through that application. If you're applying for a student visa, it's pretty straightforward. And I've done all of my paperwork without a lawyer. It's really the family permits that you might want to consider getting professional help for. Thank you for all those tips. So I want to ask you a question that I've started asking a lot of guests on here because it's fun. What is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you at work or by, by like running your business? I've heard some weird things. I can't wait to hear yeah, what's, there what's, are some, what's happened to you. <laughs> I'll say a good weird thing. So my corporate company in London, we launched a new um, product and marketing campaign with mermaids. And so the five floor office that we have, it houses about 2000 people. They made it all underwater themed with like live action mermaids that were hired to like just lay around all day and pass out cupcakes and candy and drinks. And it was just one big party for 2000 people in this office. And it was just really nice to like not take work so seriously and to just pretend we were under the ocean all day. And we still got paid for that day's worth of work. That is so cool. When you said 2000, I thought you were about to say 2000 mermaids. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> no, we had about 40 mermaids in the office. Like they were located in different parts where in the couches and the like rec spaces, uh, handing out coffee. They brought in food vendors. It was, that's one thing I miss about the office, but that's the only, the only thing they're not getting me back over there. Right. Yeah. Like the really cool things that would happen. Once in a blue moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us a bad, um, weird thing. Actually, yes, I now I'm thinking of it. So Christmas parties are a great way to end your career prematurely. So for all of the <laughs> babies out there, be on extra alert during Christmas parties. Go home at 11. Nothing good happens after that. So my company had rented out an entire like four-story club in central London. And we went for a big party that was super fun. Everyone's dancing, drinking, and having a good time. And at some point, everything changes at like, like midnight. Everybody starts drinking a little bit too much. And then someone at the club thought it was a great idea to release shot girls amongst the crowd. And these poor ladies, they had um, nipple tassels on 
and a thong and like thigh high boots at a corporate event going around dumping alcohol down senior executives throats and junior members throats and it it was chaos uh and that i i looked at the situation and i decided it was time for me to go home so i did and i have no idea what happened after that <laughs> that reminds me of the movie um I don't know if it's called Office Christmas Party with Jason Bateman and Jennifer Aniston. Have you ever seen it? T.J. Miller. No, but I'm gonna Google it. That is it. literally what you just described. That is that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of weird. I don't, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Where can the remote work besties find you? Read your blog. Work with you. Give us all the deets. Yeah. So you can find me at Wander. W A N D E R onwards on any major platform. Instagram and TikTok are my favorite and my biggest platforms. But if you really want to know more about the nitty gritty of working abroad, finding remote jobs abroad, go to my website, wanderonwards.co. You can also just plug that into Google and it will show you the way. But really, I try to create as much content for everyone to self-serve their journey abroad and into remote work so that you can really take ownership of this change and make it happen for yourself. Thank you for listening to Remote Work Bestie. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you want to tell me about the weirdest things that's ever happened to you at work or have any questions you'd like me to answer on the podcast, email remoteworkbestie at gmail.com. See you next week.